The title of the message this morning is Newness of Life, Part 2. Let's pray one more time. Father, I thank you for everyone who is here today. I ask that you would open all of our hearts and minds to hear what your spirit has to say through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to learn new things and to apply new things to our lives. For we know that every time we we read your word, and no matter how many times we read it, we always get something new out of it. We thank you for the richness of your word. And I ask that simple prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. We're going to do a very short review. Last week's review was long. This week's review will be shorter. I'm going to add one thing to it that I think the Lord laid on my heart this week. If you remember last week, I pointed out that we are admonished by the Apostle Paul to make a conscious effort to put on Christ, to make no provision for the flesh, and to be conformed to the image of Christ. Remember? In regard to that, I challenged everyone to including myself, to study the life of Christ and in so doing aim to become more like Jesus. We also visited the reality that one of the reasons why we do all of the above is to make Christ attractive to those that the Father is drawing to the Son that he may cause to cross our paths And remember, I pointed out that people are always watching us in that regard. Once you claim to be a Christian, you are automatically put under a magnifying glass by onlookers. And as such, we must, or at least we should, be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within us to anyone who asks us. We should live our lives in such a way that people are or maybe compelled to write about us when we are gone. I'm talking more about us as a generation of Christians as opposed to perhaps us as individual Christians, but we also know that individual Christians can be written about when they're gone. And I'll refer you to the latest um, biography of R.C. Sproul's life. So... I'd like to take two minutes to read you an excerpt of such a writing dating all the way back to the beginning of the second century. And this is called the Epistle to um, Diognetus. It's Diognetus, D-I-O-G-N-E-T-U-S. And it was written in defense of Christians in the Greco-Roman world. As a matter of fact, 
many scholars call it the first apology letter or first letter that defends Christians in society. These Christians had begun in the second century, the beginning of the second century, for the first time to be very, very much persecuted. Ways of immense suffering, they were, they were persecuted. So I'm going to read that now. This is from a book entitled The Apostolic Fathers. For those of you who like to read and study, I, I would recommend it. It's a classic, recommended for your library. The Apostolic Fathers, second edition, and it's translated by J.B. Lightfoot. And you'll find this letter on page 299 of this book. And forgive me taking such a long time. Now, this, was, this is what was written about these Christians. Now, you have to remember, Christians at that time were being accused of things like cannibalism because it was said that they were eating the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ and drinking his blood. There was a lot of misinformation floating around about Christians at this time in addition to the persecution. So it says... But while they live, this, this is the Christians, but while the Christians live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, the, as each one's lot was cast, they follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life at the same time as they do that, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. Here's where it gets interesting. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens or immigrants. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but... They do not expose their offspring. You have to remember at this time in the Greco-Roman world, um, first of all, female babies were frowned upon because they didn't have the place in society nor, nor could they work uh, in society the way that males could. And so some people would allow their female babies to be exposed to the elements until they died. They still do this today in some aspects of, or some places in rural China. And it's, it's commonly practiced in other places too, like, like Indonesia. Um, the other thing that that, that pertains to, um, let me find the place, in regard to exposing their offspring, um, many times uh, families were looked down upon if they had too many females and not enough males in their family. Okay, so moving on. They share their food, but not their wives. Uh, wife swapping was also very prevalent at this time. They are, quote-unquote, in the flesh, but they do not live 
according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, indeed in their private lives, though they transcend those laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. Pastor Scott was talking about. They are insulted, and yet they offer respect in return. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though they're brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners, and by the Greeks, they are persecuted, yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. It's a typical picture of true, authentic Christianity and how it is perceived and written about in the world throughout history. I can assure you that if you go online, you can easily find very similar things being written about Christians in other parts of the world today, where persecution is very real and widespread to the point of martyrdom. Not so here in the United States, at least not so much. I'm not a prophet, but I will make a prediction. Barring a great revival happening in North America, a writing such as this may be written about our children and grandchildren if they persevere as Christ followers to the end. I'm not hopeful for a great revival simply because of what the Bible says. Men's hearts will wax cold. They will grow hard. So, this is a great example of putting on Christ and being conformed to his image. Everybody with me? So back to the subject at hand. Last week, we also reviewed a little theology, if you'll remember. It was theology that is paramount, tantamount, I should say, to who we are in Christ. Namely, that those of us who are in Christ are what? Free from the law, free from the dominion of sin, and free from e eternal damnation. We've been talking about that the past, for the past four sermons. We now serve in the new way of the Holy Spirit and not in the old way, as Pastor Scott read, of the written law or the written code. And now this morning, we are going to take a look at the psyche of the Apostle Paul and thereby hopefully learn a little bit more theology and a bit more application. We left off last week in verse 6 of Romans 7. And so naturally, this morning, we'll pick up in verse 7. Paul is still talking here about law 
and sin. And as such, he says, this is verse 7, for if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. And he continues, I would not have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, he says in verse 8, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, Paul is saying that he would not have even paid uh, the act of coveting any mind until the law came along and said that coveting was a sin. In verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. This is very important. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We'll stop there for now. When Paul says in verse 7 that I would not have known sin if it hadn't been for the law, I want you to see what Paul is doing here in an overarching thematic way in this entire chapter. He's jumping back. He recoils at just the mere thought that our freedom from the law in Christ would in any way seem to suggest that there's something wrong with the law itself. I want to I say that again. Paul is recoiling at just the mere thought that our freedom from the law in Christ would in any way seem to suggest that there's something wrong with the law itself. Paul says, no way, Jose, the law is actually good because it shows us our sin and consequently, as we will see, it shows us our need for who? Christ. So there's nothing wrong with the law, Paul says. I'm the one who has the issues here. I'm the one who can't seem to get it right. I'm always doing the things that I know I'm not supposed to be doing, even the things that I hate doing. I try not to do them, but I always seem to end up doing them anyway. How many of you can relate I know I can. I mean, if we stopped here, right here, at verse 7, and we said, yep, you, you've got that right, Paul. This is Christianity, and this is the end of all of Christianity right here. It's summed up in Romans 7. If we did that, we would be the most hopeless, dejected people on the planet, and rightfully so. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. More on that in a minute. Back to our original question. What is Paul actually trying to convey here? Now follow me on this, okay? I'm going to take you on a wild goose chase. Last week we looked at Romans chapter 6 verse 22. Where Paul says, quote, 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. This is where we are now, or at least it should be where we are in our thinking and practice. We've talked about it numerous times in previous weeks. So why am I bringing it up again? I'm bringing it up again because even though it's supposed to be where we are in Christ and in our thinking, many times, if we are honest, we are out to lunch and nowhere near here in our thinking because old habits are very hard to break. The Apostle Paul in our text is setting up a contrast He's setting up a contrast, what we should think and believe, contrasted with what we actually think and believe, and where we actually try to operate from in our Christian life at times. I'm not saying this is all the time, every time, but at times. It's a habit that we have, and we'll see why in a moment. So check this out. In Romans 7... 1 through 25, which is our text, the entire chapter, Paul is conveying the absolute, listen, the absolute disastrous consequences that arise when a Christian tries to reintroduce the law as a means to attain the objective of holiness and sanctification. One more time. In Romans 7, 1 through 25, Paul is conveying the absolute disastrous consequences that arise when a Christian tries to reintroduce the law as a means to attain the objective of sanctification or holiness. And newsflash, you can't do it that way. You can't do Christianity that way. Like Paul said in Romans 7 verse 18, if you look there, you may want to do what is right and thereby please God by keeping that law. But Paul says you don't have the ability to carry it out because nothing good dwells in you or in your flesh. That's verse 18. Remember, we are still in the context of flesh and spirit here and we will be for some time. And not only flesh and spirit, but also works and grace. And by the way, it would be good to insert here that, you know, when Paul talks about the law in Romans, he's talking about works. Okay, not just the Levitical law, the Mosaic law, the moral law, all works. Okay, and he's talking about the law in general. So we need to understand that. So you can't overcome your sinful inclinations, remember, we're all born into a nature inclined to sin, and it will sin every day, a hundred times a day. You cannot overcome your sinful inclinations by proclaiming the law and attempting to keep it perfectly and or meritoriously. Put more simply, the law doesn't improve your ability to be holy or sanctified. Instead, it exposes your sin and proves that you are not holy. 
So to answer the question that I posed a moment ago when I asked you what Paul meant when he said in Romans 7, 7, I would have not known sin if it had not been for the law, he means that the very first right use, correct use of the law is to show us our sin and subsequently our need for Christ. So listen, sin sin does not exist in the law. It exists in us. Remember, the law exposes sin. It actually defines it and exposes it. With that said, Christians who revert to dependence upon the law, upon works, righteousness, upon works, righteousness, Christians who revert to that as a foundation or a footing for their relationship with God will recognize a rift between their reason desire, their reason desire for goodness of the law, and their performance that is grossly contrary to the law. Let me say that again. Christians who revert to dependence upon the law or upon works as the foundation or the footing for their relationship with God will recognize a rift between their reason desire for the goodness of the law and their actual performance that is grossly contrary to the law, i.e., they desire to keep the law but can't. They desire to keep the law to please God, but they can't. People who do this are unable, I'm going to tell you why I'm spending so much time on this. People who do this are unable to be free from the slavery and the drudgery and the imprisonment of sin and its consequences. Why? Because they have a hard time grasping the fact that the only way they can please God, we have a hard time grasping this. The only way that we can please God is through the power of God's grace working through Jesus Christ. And they haven't rightly grasped that God is standing there offering them this grace through Christ for free. They are grounding their Christianity in obedience to works instead of grounding their Christianity in the obedience of Christ's work. They're still trying to please God in their own flesh by their works and it can't be done. Consequently and therefore too, whenever they break the law, which they will find themselves doing, as I said, all day long, they get discouraged about their Christianity because they still think they have to keep the law to please God. They fail to grasp the very basic, it's so basic, but so difficult for so many Christians. They fail to grasp the very basic and all foundational aspect the most important uh, thing in the entire Christendom 
which is that Christ was obedient to the law for them. And that is a finished work that Christ did for them. And, and because it's a finished work, they don't have to put their works on display as merit to please the Heavenly Father because Jesus already did that for them. I don't know how many other ways I can say it, but yet I am compelled to say it over and over again because I incessantly run into Christians. Or I should say I incessantly run into people who call themselves Christians who are still trying to get into heaven by way of their behavior. I would go as far as to say that the majority of people in the United States who call themselves evangelical Christians do not understand the gospel at all. I know that because I can view six different Christian TV networks and in doing so, watch hundreds of sermons a year or listen to them by popular Christian radio and I can see plainly that very, very few preachers actually even preach the gospel. They don't even preach it anymore. They don't even mention sin. Turn on a preacher on TV who's popular, a celebrity pastor, and in whatever message he's giving, write down how many times you hear him say sin. Your pencil will stay sharpened for a very long time. They simply don't get the fact, these Christians, that their behavior will perpetually, perpetually condemn them and that in order to avoid eternal condemnation, they must be found in Christ. Hence, if you look in your Bible, please look. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Hence, there is what? Therefore, now, in the here and now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set them free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You will not hear these verses on Christian TV and radio today, at least not in the largest and most popular churches today. These places are just what I call bless me clubs run by celebrity um, pastors. I call them motivational speakers. They remind me of my sales days back in the early 80s when we used to listen to Zig Ziglar and John T. Malloy and Douglas Edwards and all these people who try to motivate salesmen. That's what these guys do. They're pep rallies at best. So listen to me, church. The Christian life is an experience of constant challenges to put to death 
the evil deeds of the body through the life of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But when we attempt to put to death the evil deeds of the body through our, our life, okay, in the Holy Spirit, we do so because we love God. And we are thankful to Him for the free gift of His Son who died for our sins so that we can have victory over sin and the grave. We don't do it. We don't try to please God out of drudgery. We don't try to please God to save ourselves. We don't try to please God to, to gain standing with Him, right standing with Him. We want to please God because of gratitude, thankfulness. That we don't have to do those things to be saved. Because we know that if we did have to do those things to be saved, none of us would be saved. Am I making any sense? We deny our flesh. And we walk in the spirit. Out of this gratitude. And that should, folks, I hope. And this is where our thinking needs to be retrained. Some people, I hope that it makes you full of joy. There are so many misled Christians out there who are trying to earn through the way they act. And I'm telling you this morning, Paul is telling you this morning, that this is not possible. You could try till you're blue in the face to put to death the evil deeds of your body by striving and striving and striving to keep the law and or please God with your works. And in so doing, you will fail every single time. Why? And this is important, folks, because your theology is all wrong. Theology is very important. It means the study of God. We need to study God in order to understand the simplicity of the gospel. Again, like Paul says, you'll do the things that you hate and you don't want to do. Verse 15. And when you do them, you won't even be able to understand why you do them other than knowing that you can be hindered by your flesh and the world and the devil while living this life on this planet Earth, okay? That's Paul talking, not me. And as I said before, look at verse 15. So I don't understand my actions, Paul says. For I, I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. In this chapter... Paul is saying, he's making it very, very clear. If you're going to sum up the whole chapter, the law has no claim over Christians, true Christians. And the reason, one of the reasons why is because the, the Christian's allegiance has been transferred to Christ. Your allegiance has been transferred to Christ. We see this in verse 4, if you want to look, of chapter 7. Paul says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we 
may bear fruit for God. You belong to Christ, church. You're unable to free yourself from slavery of sin, power of death. That's the good news that God has rescued from that defeat, from that, that power that sin had over you. You're rescued from that by the power of his grace working through Christ who lives in you. And again, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, simply put, says that as a Christian, you are joined to Christ and the power of Christ's resurrection, remember, baptized with him, death, burial, resurrection. You're joined to the power of Christ's resurrection, and that makes it possible. That's the only thing that makes it possible for you to produce the fruit of the newness of life that is pleasing, for, pleasing to God. It's only in Christ that it's pleasing to God. It's only in Christ that it's true fruit. So yeah, the Christian life is constant. It's a constant challenge to put to death the, uh, the evil deeds of the flesh, or the evil deeds of the body. That's a given. This is why we must walk in the Holy Spirit and not in our own power. And I can't stress enough, when we screw up, and we give into the deeds of the flesh because of sin, the world, and the devil. Jesus said in John 16, 33, you can write that down. He says in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world, he says, you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus said these words to his disciples right before he went to his torturous death on the cross. For them and for us. He had just finished telling them that they would be put out of the synagogues and put to death. What a killjoy, huh? I'm going to go die and then you're going to go die. And Jesus said to them, don't worry, though. I'm going to send you a comforter who will guide you in the way of truth. You see, it's not so much, folks, about do's and don'ts. It's about what's true and false. And about the authority whereby you measure truth and falsehood, which is the word of God, which is the first thing that false teachers throw out the window. In verse 11 of Romans 7, Paul says, For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. What's Paul saying here? He's telling his readers that his sinful nature deceived him into thinking that he could have life through the commandment. When the commandment actually led to greater sin and greater guilt. And he goes on to say that the law and the commandment are holy, righteous, and good. And as such, the law doesn't become a cause of death for us. Rather, it is our sin that causes death, verse 13. And it is the law that makes us see how utterly sinful sin really is. It's the law that makes us see 
how utterly sinful sin really is. So now that Paul in our text begins to elaborate on the next logical step, which is the conflict between our two natures, the carnal nature and the spiritual nature, we're okay to move on. Now there's a contrast here as we move on between that which is produced by the Holy Spirit in us, contrasted with our sinful fallen nature. We have to understand that sin still resides in us, okay? In verse 17, Paul says, Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am going, if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the, man, in the inner man. But I see a different law, he says. I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And then in verse 24, that famous verse, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, title of the sermon, who will deliver me from the body of this death? The suspense is killing me, Paul. Isn't it killing you? What will it be, Paul? How will you be set free from the death or from the body of this death? Will it be your own works, Paul? Will, will it be by the law, Paul? Will it be by having your best life now, Paul? Please tell us who will deliver you from the body of this death. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's who delivers you. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul does not ignore his sinfulness. I want you to see that. Yet, he, okay, he doesn't give it up. In other words, sin will not master us. We are free from its dominion, but that doesn't mean that while we are in the flesh, we don't struggle with sin. We do struggle with sin this side of eternity, in this fleshly tent, tempted by this world and this devil. We struggle with it every day, but we possess the already not yet. That's why Paul cries out and says, who will deliver me from, from this body of death? Answer, God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are positionally righteous in Christ. We've talked about this a million times. We are positionally righteous in Christ, but this won't be fully realized until we die, already not yet. In the meantime, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. In fact, it's Christ that intercedes for us right now, this minute. He continues to forgive us and restore us while we are in this fleshly tent, and he will continue to deliver us from sin, the world, and the devil until we are 
together with him in glory, already not yet. And the Holy Spirit works in us, which is perhaps the surest proof of our salvation. In chapter 8, we will see the Holy Spirit referenced, the Holy Spirit's work referenced 19 times. It is he who sanctifies us and keeps us in the faith even when we aren't faithful. So please leave here this morning knowing, knowing that you know that there's only one way for you to be saved from eternal damnation, and that is to go to God in prayer and ask him, if you don't know him, to forgive you of your sins. That's where it starts. If there's no forgiveness of sins, there's no gospel. If a preacher doesn't talk about the forgiveness of sin, first and foremost, he's not preaching the gospel. Jesus' first words in his public ministry were repent, and so were John the Baptist's. And they were Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven. Go and preach repentance. So we go to God in prayer and we ask him to forgive you of your sins, and he will. Tell him that you believe that he sent his only begotten son to this earth in order to die on Calvary's cross for your sins in your stead. Ask Christ to reveal himself to you right now, and he will. I promise you he will. Commit your life to him. Follow him. Read the scriptures. Meet the Lord in prayer. Fellowship with other believers. Go to church. These are things that follow authentic conversions. So, I'm sorry I was repetitive about the law so much, but it's so important for us to grasp this and to realize that it is, this subject is the foundation for everything that we're going to look at in the rest of the epistle in Romans has everything to do with everything in Christianity, this subject here in chapter 7. Let's pray.